When the angel came to Mary to tell her she was pregnant with Jesus, she learned that the Lord would give Jesus the throne of his father David. This was the beginning of many promises God was fulfilling through the birth of Jesus. This is season one of the Hymn We Proclaim podcast with John Fonville, and we're in episode three called The Offspring of David. It's originally from a series called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We have a lot in store today on this topic of God's promises to David. So let's get started now. Here's John. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. And let me just quickly review with you what we've looked at this Advent season. We have first seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised offspring of Eve. He is the serpent crusher, right? Second, we have seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised offspring of Abraham. He is the offspring through which the entire world, all the nations of the earth, Jew and Gentile, will be blessed, justified, sanctified, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 3. So what I want you to see today is this, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised offspring of David. And I want to show you, after we look at that, how the, how the kingship of Jesus is good news. This topic is so big. Let me just set up the context for you for the book of Genesis. The scriptures in Psalm 10 verse 16 tells us this, that the triune God is a king forever. He is a king forever. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 10 verse 16. The Lord is king forever. And so God is a sovereign, majestic king. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 function like this in Scripture. The opening creation account is God, the great king, all right, who has a preamble. Preambles in this ancient Mesopotamian culture was the great suzerain's right to rule over the subjects of his kingdom. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is. It is God, the great king's preamble that establishes his sovereign right to rule over his creation. He is the great God. He is the great king. He is the sovereign creator king who has the right to rule over his creation. That's you and me, his created beings. We are not God. We are creations of God. And so really, theologically, Genesis 1 and 2, that's what it's all about. It is, it is covenantal terms. This is God, the great suzerain king, who says, I have a right, an absolute sovereign right to rule my creation. And then what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that his creation rebels. And the amazing thing is this, because you heard it this morning in our scripture readings from uh, the book of James, that, that you've heard the outcome of Job, that God is full of compassion and he's gracious, he's merciful. I don't know if you've read the book of Job lately, but that's the point. God is full of grace and compassion, he's merciful. Because he's full of compassion and gracious, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he promises his rebellious creation that his rule will be exercised through the promised champion offspring of the woman. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 12, we're told that this champion offspring of the woman will come through one of Abraham's descendants. And the Lord promises that through this champion offspring of Eve, who will now come through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth, 
Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that this blessing is justification and it is sanctification. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 3 verse 14. So then we come to Genesis chapter 49 where I had you turn. And I want you to look with me just for a little bit at Genesis chapter 49. We're going to skip the story of Joseph and how God is preserving his seed through the sons of Jacob and all that. And we come to the end how God has been faithful to preserve his offspring, his seed. Because really when you, when you study the book of Genesis, it's that Hebrew term throughout all of Genesis, zerah, zerah, zerah. It means Hebrew is just seed, offspring. God is faithful to preserve this seed that he's promised from Genesis 3.15. So you come to Genesis chapter 49, and look what we find. We find, we discover that Abraham's seed, his offspring, and his blessing of the nations will come through the royal kingly line of Judah. Jacob, in Genesis chapter 49, before he dies, he calls his 12 sons together to pronounce a blessing on them. And this remarkable thing happens when he gets to his son Judah. He prophesies that one of Judah's descendants will be a great king. Look at verse 8. Jacob says that Judah's brothers shall praise him and bow down before him. Look at verse 10. Jacob says that Judah's descendant will hold a scepter and a ruler's staff. That's symbols of kingship. And he says that the nations shall give obedience to his son. Listen to what he says. He says to Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a remarkable prophecy of Jacob. This prophecy creates this great expectation in God's people for the coming universal reign of this messianic king who will have dominion over all the nations and, and through his d- dominion over the nations, he will bless the nations as he's promised to do through Abraham. And so the story of redemption begins to unfold, and eventually we discover that the promised kingly descendant of Judah is initially fulfilled in the rule of David. And that takes you all the way to the book of First and Second Samuel. And so when we come to First and Second Samuel in the unfolding story of redemption, we discover we're introduced to this man called David. And David is the eighth and youngest son of Jesse, and he was, listen, he was from the kingly tribe of Judah, just as prophesied in Genesis 49. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, the author contrasts David and Saul, and he demonstrates that David, in contrast, as he is in his great palace, he's looking out across Jerusalem, And he notices that the ark is still in a tent. So he has this great royal palace, and God, the ark, is in a little lowly tent, right? And so he wants to rectify this discrepancy, and he says, I want to build a house for God to reside in, a glorious house that is befitting of God's reign as king. But in a turn of events, the author says that the Lord speaks to Nathan the prophet and he puts a halt on David's temple building plans. 
So he says, look at verse 11. We'll start looking, we'll begin reading in verse 11. Uh, Instead of building a house for God, God promises to build a house for David. Look what he says, look at verse 11. It says, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. He says, so when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your descendant, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This was remarkable. David said, I'm gonna build a house for God. And God says, no, time out. You're not gonna build anything. I am gonna build a house for you. And so this is remarkable. It's important to note a couple of things about the Lord's promise to David. This is called the Davidic covenant, all right? The Davidic covenant focuses less on David and it focuses all mostly on David's son, the offspring of David. But the second thing I want you to see is this word house. The Lord promises to build a house for David. What is this house? The house is David's offspring. It's the seed. It's the promised seed of the woman of Eve, of Abraham, and now of David. He says this, he says, verse 12, he says, I will raise up your descendant, your offspring after you who will come forth from you. And he says, and I will establish his kingdom and he, this offspring of David, the son of David shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of David's son and his kingdom forever. And so concerning, look what he says in verse 14, David's kingly offspring, the Lord promises this. The Lord promises, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is the doctrine of adoption. This doctrine of adoption formula, it intensifies the intimacy between the Lord and David's son. And then look at this curious thing that God says in verse 14. As a faithful father To his adopted son, the Lord says that he will correct David's son. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But then notice in verse 15 that the Lord also promises that his steadfast love will be upon David's son forever. And so in verse 16, the Lord sums it up and he says, he promises David, David, your house your offspring, you shall have an offspring, you shall have a son, and he shall have a kingdom and a throne that will be established forever. And so the Lord makes these great promises, these unconditional promises to David in the Davidic covenant. He promises a house, an offspring, a descendant. He promises a kingdom. He promises a throne upon which his son will reign forever. 
And then if you look at Psalm 89, Psalm 89, this unconditional and permanent nature of the Lord's promise is highlighted by the psalmist because he celebrates the steadfast love and covenant faithfulness of God in the Davidic covenant. Listen to what he says. This psalmist is actually, we're going to come back to it because he's lamenting the fact that he's not seeing God fulfill his promises to David. And he's wondering, is God really faithful? Is God really filled with compassion? Is God really merciful? Does he really remember us in our current state? Can God really be trusted? But as he is thinking about the Davidic covenant, listen to what he says in Psalm 89, verse 33. He says, I will not break off my loving kindness for him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, and he says, and I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And so the psalmist is reflecting on God's promise to send this offspring, the son of David. And he says that the Lord swore to David by his holiness. The Davidic covenant, he says, cannot be broken because if it would be broken, that would, the Lord would have to lie. And that, of course, is something God cannot and would never do. And so God has promised by his holiness, his character, his nature, that David's son will reign as king forever and ever. So that's very quickly uh, the Davidic covenant and the story of David. So at this point in 2 Samuel chapter 7, here's the question in the biblical story. Who will be David's son that reigns forever and ever? Because everybody's starting now to look for this great king, this great deliverer. David's son is coming to deliver us and to save us. Who will it be? Well, if you keep reading the story, you come to the book of 1 Kings. And it appears when you're reading the book of 1 Kings that David himself thought that it would be his son Solomon. In fact, Solomon himself thought that he was the promised offspring of his father David. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, Solomon is, he is praying to God and he believes that the Lord has fulfilled the promise to his father David in him. And listen how he prays. He says, quote, he says, now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. Second Samuel 7, the, to David, the Davidic covenant. God has done it. He's fulfilled it. I'm the fulfillment. He says, for I have risen in place of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon was the temple builder. And so Solomon, as he prays, thinks that he deserves this eternal throne that the Lord has promised. He is the offspring of David. He is the son of David. He has built the house uh, the temple. He has built the house for God. 
And so in 1 Kings chapter 9, the Lord comes to Solomon after his prayer, and he says, Solomon, I've heard your prayer, but I want to just make something clear. And then listen to 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. The Lord says to Solomon, as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then, Solomon, I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so the Lord reminds Solomon, listen carefully, I will establish the throne of David's righteous faithful son. But remember this, because of this unconditional nature of the Lord's promise, one of David's sons will always be on the throne. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. There will always be a son of David, a king reigning on Israel's throne. But listen, but God says only the obedient son will receive the promised everlasting kingdom. And so when we start reading 1 Kings chapters 8 through 10, we're thinking, wow, it appears Solomon is the son of David. He is the faithful, righteous son of David. He is, he is reigning in peace and glory, and the nations of the earth are coming to him, and the Queen of Sheba and all these great rulers are, are amazed at the glory and power and wisdom and wealth and might of King Solomon in Israel. And so we were thinking, wow, 1 Kings 8, 9, and 10, the glory has come. The faithful son of David has arrived. He's built the house. And yet, you have to keep reading the story. And you come to 1 Kings chapter 11 and listen to this. Now, Solomon loved many foreign women. And it says, verse 2, And from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Because remember, God was bringing the seed through the promised sons of David, and it could not be, the line could not be corrupted. And this is the, the offspring and the serpent trying to corrupt throughout all of redemptive history, the seed promise coming through this, this royal line. And listen to what it says about Solomon. Solomon held fast to these in love, to these foreign women. He held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives. How many do you have? <laughs> I have one, and that's enough. Not because of her, but because of me, right? He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. He is way east of Eden at this point, right? Yeah. And listen, and his wives turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. 
For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as as David, as David his father had done. Solomon is not the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's not the promised son. He's not the faithful, righteous builder of God's house. He has done evil in the sight of the Lord. And so from, from, from this point forward in redemptive history, as you go back and think about 2 Samuel 7, God promised that uh, to David unconditionally, David, uh, I will be faithful to fulfill my covenant with you and sustain your, your Davidic dynasty. But God, listen, as the history of the kings of Israel unfolds, go home and read First and Second Kings. And he did evil, and he did evil, and he did evil. And oh, this one did pretty good, but then he did evil. They all failed. And so as the history of the book of First and Second Kings and the history of Israel unfolds, the Lord will continue to put David's sons on the throne of Israel. And when David's son is disobedient, he will remove that son. I, when he commits iniquity, what? I will discipline him. I will remove him. And, and he said in 2 Samuel 7, I'll raise up another son. I'll install another son of David. I'll bring another king to the throne. And so this pattern of removing, installing will continue until a righteous and faithful son is found and no more successors are needed. And so the coming reign of the son of David from 2 Samuel 7 forward, this Davidic king becomes the great hope for Israel. And so Israel began to wait in faith for the righteous, faithful son of David. And it was during this long period of waiting that God's people began to question the Lord's steadfast love. Is he faithful? Does he really come through? Does he perform what he promises? And this lament, this questioning is found in Psalm 89 again, verses 46 and 49. Listen to the psalmist's lament. He says, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? God's people were wondering, is God faithful to fulfill his promise? Is his covenant promise sure? Is he really a God of loving kindness? Does he really have steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, mercy? Is he truly a God of promise and performance? Is God going to come through? And this brings us to the New Testament And it brings us to the Lord's fulfillment of his promise to David. And the New Testament reveals in a variety of ways how God is faithful to fulfill his promise to David through Christ. As we come to the opening chapters of the Gospels in the New Testament, and we we look at the Gospel of Luke, we see that God's people had now been waiting roughly about a thousand years since God made that original promise in 2 Samuel 7. To David. And as we look specifically in the context of the Gospels, we see that there had been no son of David reigning on the throne for over 500 years since King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had destroyed the temple in 586 BC. 
God's people, uh, though they had come out of the Babylonian exile, they still remained under the oppression of a foreign king and a foreign government. And then we come to the Gospels and we see Old Testament saints like Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna eagerly waiting in faith for the arrival of the son of David. And it is into this eager waiting, this long period of waiting, that the Lord finally breaks the silence. And Luke tells us in his gospel that God sends the angel Gabriel to this obscure teenage Jewish virgin girl. And her name is Mary. And this great angel announces to her the astonishing news, the arrival of the son of David, the king in her womb. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter one. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Look, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is the Davidic covenant fulfilled in the womb of a teenage virgin. This is astonishing. We find the same thing in Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, in Luke 1, verse 69. He's prophesying as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What is a horn? A horn is a metaphor for strength. And he's saying that the house of his servant David refers to the dynasty of David promised by the Lord in 2 Samuel 7. And so Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies and praises God. And he says, God is faithful and he has sent a mighty savior who is the descendant of David who will now reign as king. We come to the, the gospel of Matthew. I'm just going to have to give you some quick overviews because we could, this would take forever to look at all of it. But in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us right at the beginning of his genealogy in the opening verses of his gospel in chapter one, verse one, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Every first century Jew, when they read that opening line, knew exactly what Matthew was saying. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And so God was faithful. We see this in the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke that emphasizes Jesus' Davidic descent. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 69, Luke tells us that Mary was of the house of David from whom Jesus' lineage is traced. In Luke chapter two, verse four, Luke tells us that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, again, from whom Jesus's lineage is traced. Luke chapter two, verse 11, the angels emphasize to the shepherds that the place where Jesus has been born is, quote, the city of David. Matthew chapter two, verses one through six, Jesus fulfills, Matthew says, the prophecy of Micah 5, 2. And he is a king who has been born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David, where David, 1 Samuel 20, was born. And so the point is clear. There are many more examples from the gospels, but the point is clear. The gospels tell us that Jesus is the faithful, righteous son of David who's come to build a house for God's name. 
We find this fulfillment also in the book of Acts in the letters of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. Let me just quickly go through a couple of examples. Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching the gospel to all the Jewish audience that is there. And he proclaims the gospel by appealing to the Davidic covenant. And he proves that Jesus is both Christ and Lord to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Uh, we look at the book of Romans. Listen to how Paul begins his letter to the book of Romans. He declares to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 verse 3 that his gospel is concerning God's son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's powerful. Paul begins Romans by introducing his readers to the good news about the Davidic king. He says that the good news to these Roman Christians is that God's promise of a descendant of David whose reign would be forevermore has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He says, this is my gospel. And the way he begins his letter to Romans is the way he ends his letter to Romans. In Romans chapter 15, he quotes uh, Isaiah 11 verse 10, which says this, the root of Jesse shall come. He who rises to the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And Paul says that from the root of Jesse, God has brought forth Christ, who is the righteous son of David, and that through faith in this righteous son of David, the blessing of Abraham will come to the Gentiles because he says, in him shall the Gentiles hope. This was Paul's gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Listen to what Paul exhorts Timothy. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David as preached in my gospel. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, don't ever forget in your ministry, God is faithful and he has fulfilled what he promised long ago to David by sending Jesus who is the descendant of David. And then the last place I want to show you before we look at the application is Revelation chapter 5. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 as we finish this part. Revelation chapter 5 verses 5 through 10. We're not going to look at the whole thing, but just parts of it. The apostle John in Revelation chapter 5, he refers to Jesus as the descendant of David. Listen to Revelation 5 verse 5. One of the elders in heaven cry out in a loud voice to John. He says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And so opening the scroll in its seven seals means that God is bringing to completion his purposes. And the elder tells John that Jesus is the one who can do this because, listen, he is the lion of Judah. He is the fulfillment of the king promised from the Davidic tribe of Judah, as Jacob had said back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And then he says he is the root of David, which is an allusion to Isaiah 11, verse 1. He is the king from the line of David. And then look at uh, chapter 5, verse 6. You have this shocking contrast of images because John tells us in chapter five, verse six, that the lion of Judah from the Davidic tribe of Judah, who is the root of David, he's also the lamb. 
He says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. That's why we sang that song this morning, The Lion and the Lamb. I don't know if you picked up on that. That's a great, actually, Advent hymn. That's exactly why we sing it, because Jesus is the lion and the lamb who was slain, and he's coming to conquer again. And that's what we sung about. John says that he's the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the sacrificial lamb of a new Passover. This link between Jesus' kingship, a crucified king, and his death, as I told you several weeks ago, was the stumbling block for Jews. They could not figure this out. The conquering son of man of Daniel 7 with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was utterly foreign to their concept of the coming son of David. But Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 37, that when Jesus was crucified, the placard on his cross identified Jesus as, quote, the king of the Jews. And this wasn't just an historical reason for this. It was a theological point by Matthew that precisely as promised, Jesus is the descendant of David. He is the king of the Jews, and he is the crucified king who is dying for the subjects of his kingdom to save them. And so that's the fulfillment, that's the story. And as we finish this morning, as we reflect on how Jesus is the fulfillment of this great promised offspring of David, let me just quickly give you three, uh, three ways that the kingship of Jesus is good news today. Here's the first one. As our eternal king, Jesus is constructing the only temple God can live in. He was born, this author says, of the Virgin Mary, of the line of David, as God's true son, holy and blameless, and Christ came as a temple builder for God's name. He constructed, this author says, the only temple that God could live in, a spiritual temple where God's people are the living stones and are holy. He did this by his blood, his imputed righteousness to us. His blood purged away all our sins, to make us, the church, the living temple of God. We are the house God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. This is why Paul can write to the Corinthian church in, in 2 Corinthians, and he can say to them in chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know, Corinthians, that you are the, listen, temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, the church, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says that the church comprised of both Jew and Gentile listen, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The church is God's house where the spirit dwells. And Jesus is building this. This is why in Revelation chapter 21, verse three, at the consummation of the Davidic covenant, it says, behold, the, the, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so all of these passages are true because Christ, the temple builder, came was righteous and faithful, and he fulfilled the Davidic covenant for us. Second, 
As our eternal king, Jesus defends and preserves us in the redemption he has obtained for us. We sang it this morning. He's fighting our battles. He is our king who defends and preserves us. You know, we should just sing that again, Sierra. (laughs) That's good news, right? We love to sing the gospel around here with a lot of passion. Jesus is not only our crucified king who died for us on the cross, but he is also our ascended king who now sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father in power where he lives forever to intercede for us and to preserve and defend us forevermore. This is what we hear in the comfortable words in the Book of Common Prayer in the liturgy week after week in church. As we're reminded of our ascended King Jesus, who is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Aren't you grateful for that? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, because he is the faithful, righteous son of David. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What comfort. Zacharias or Sinus, who gave us the Heidelberg Catechism, he says this about Jesus' kingly defense and preservation of us. He says, he preserves and defends us against our enemies, both external and internal, which he does by protecting us by his almighty power, arming us against our foes, that we may by his spirit be furnished with every weapon necessary for resisting and overcoming them. And then here's a third benefit of Jesus' kingship. Um, As our eternal king, Jesus governs us by his word and his spirit. Listen to this. All who believe in the son of David, Jesus rules as king for them. As king, Jesus rules to save and he saves to rule. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The the word shepherd in John's gospel goes back to the Old Testament, which 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 is a word for king. There were no good kings in Israel. And Jesus says, I am the good king. I am the good shepherd. I am the good king. And the good king, listen, gives his life. For the sheep. What king does that for the subjects of his kingdom? He doesn't save us and then leave us to be devoured by savage wolves. Listen to Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, I am his redeemer. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. That's our King Jesus. Jesus' rule is established in the hearts and lives of believers through the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And how does the kingdom of God come? What is the kingdom of God? It is simply his rule and his blessing. How does that come? Graham Goldsworthy says it best. Jesus exercises his kingly power through the scepter of his preached gospel. When the gospel is preached... Jesus comes in power through the Holy Spirit to rule in the hearts 
of the subjects of his kingdom. He comes, listen, Jesus reigns to bless as the son of David and as the son of Abraham. He reigns to bless, not to judge and curse. The Holy Spirit comes and reigns by conquering our dead hearts and raises us to life by, Paul says, making us new creations in Christ. And having brought us to life, the Holy Spirit then begins to put to death our fallen flesh and to mold and shape us into the image of Christ. He subdues our sin, he subdues our flesh, and he makes us new creations in Christ. And the scriptures speak of Christ as head of the church repeatedly, and his rule over his church is closely related to his mystical union that is formed between Christ and the church, which the Bible describes the church as Christ's body. This is how one author says it. He says, Jesus' current kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, so it has no flag, no world headquarters, and no post office box. But it is certainly and powerfully present wherever Christ's people gather to hear God's word proclaimed and to receive the sacraments. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords who governs us by his word and spirit, the church which he has purchased with his own blood, and he defends his church against all her enemies, internal and external. That's good news, is it not? I mean, that's really good news. And so at present, when we look at this world and we watch the news, we don't see everything under Christ's feet. But his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant guarantees our blessed hope as this crucified, risen, and ascended son of David, the great king, God has sworn that his son, he will put all things under his son's feet. Just one quick word of application as we close. Sometimes people say when you come to Paramount Church, wow, they kneel. This is really not comfortable. Listen very carefully. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because that's what you do for a king in his presence. So this is just practice and warm up so you get used to it. It is uncomfortable And that is the point. You're not God. He is. And we bow our knees in humble submission to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And when we bow and confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because he reigns to bless his people, not to hurt them. And so as we see this the evil of this present world, Jesus' fulfillment of the Davidic covenant assures us that one day, Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so what is the good news of Jesus' kingship? Let me just sum it up with this author here as we finish. The author writes this. He says, our hope is not in earthly presidents, Don't laugh, right? It's not politicians. As much as we like politicians or dislike politicians, our hope is not in earthly presidents and politicians. It's not in governors. It's not in armies. Our hope is in the heavenly kingship of Christ. 
He is protecting us until the last trumpet when he comes as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Then Christ will destroy all of his and our enemies, especially the last enemy, death itself. And he will raise us up to be like him and to dwell with him in the light of his face forevermore. And that is the good news of Christ in the Davidic covenant. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. And we're like the psalmist. We say, how long, O Lord? There are things in our lives this morning that are crushing our hearts. There are troubles that we are going through. There are burdens that we are carrying. There are heartaches. There are griefs. There are sufferings. There are sicknesses. There are disappointments and failures. And we need to hear this good news that you have come and sent your son and you have been faithful throughout all of redemptive history. When we look at the scriptures and we see at every turn, it looks like it will be impossible through this fallen mess of humanity for you to bring about what you've promised and you would just give up and quit and you never have. You have been faithful, filled with steadfast love. And so as we come to your table this morning, we pray that through this means of grace, your table, you are the servant, that you would serve us and that we by faith would truly receive all of who you are and all of your service to us today and confirm in our hearts that even in the mess of our lives, you are faithful to fulfill what you've promised. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hymn We Proclaim podcast with John Fonville. You just heard a message called The Offspring of David. It's part three of the four-part Advent series called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We invite you back again for part four coming up in just a few days called The Promise of a New Covenant. Him We Proclaim is a ministry of Dr. John Fonville of Paramount Church in Jacksonville, Florida. You can check out his website at paramountchurch.com. We look forward to next time.